Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. We're here at the Australian Citizen Science Association pub, meal, whatever you want to call it. And I'm here tonight with Claire Hawkins from Bookend Trust and the University of Tasmania. Did I get that right? You got it bang on in. Oh, did I? I'm getting better as we're going along. I should have another drink. <laughs> <laughs> And Claire, what brings you here to the association's conference this week? Well, I have now been doing citizen science for, oh, I think it must be about eight years. So I'm a bit of an obsessive, I guess. And it's great to be able to hang out with like-minded people. Yes, it is. You found your tribe. I have found my tribe. Beautiful. And what project are you involved with at the moment? Well, I run a program called Nature Trackers. Nature Trackers. Yes, and that is a program of three particular citizen science projects, which I could talk about in great length. <laughs> Let me know what you'd like to know about first. <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose give you the origin story first. Yeah. Hey? How did you get involved? Yeah, uh, well, I... Used to work in the state government for nine years. I was threatened species zoologist, and we would give out all this advice about how to help conserve and protect and recover threatened species. But the vast majority of them we weren't monitoring, so we couldn't tell if any of it was actually working, um, which I found really difficult and painful. And I was also really aware that a lot of the stuff that we knew about that that was an issue for these species, or we suspected was nobody else knew about so I thought I really want to work with the public I want to work with the public to help to so that we have more eyes on the ground and we can do some monitoring um, and also I'd really like to work with the public so that we can share all our knowledge together and that we can all obtain the knowledge together and we all can trust in the information that we've collected instead of off being off in an ivory tower and nobody know it, knowing what you're doing so that was how that was born and I was lucky enough to do a Churchill Fellowship in 2015, all about how to design a long-term monitoring program. So what's a Churchill Fellowship? Oh, gosh. Well, everyone should do one. <laughs> it's, such, it's such an amazing, lovely thing to do. It could be on any subject. You apply to the Churchill, what are they called? The Churchill Fellowship Memorial Trust, which was put together on the death of Churchill. All Australians put in money for this fund in his memory. And you get uh, funding to go off and learn about something, really, that you can bring back. It's very, use it's very important that you bring something back that's useful to the country. And in my case, I brought back uh, an understanding from around various parts of the world about how to develop projects working with citizen science, which is a very particular um, sort of method, really, working with lots of people to achieve a thing, to monitor threatened species. Well, and what sort of threatened species have you? <laughs> well, so all of it's long term because uh, it, numbers change slowly, if at all. Yeah. We started off on a very iconic bird, thought let, let's start with something easier that everyone will be really into. So for us, that's the Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle, which is considered a different subspecies from the mainland and it's got different issues and it's endangered. Okay. It's got so many issues. It's got an issue that, well, the traditional thing is that people used to poison it and, I'm sorry, uh, shoot it and the may still do we don't really know unfortunately although it's got amazing sight it's not very good with kind of unnatural structures like power lines and wind turbines so it crashes into yeah i do that too. yeah i know but they do have amazing sight but they do yeah it's just like when something's whirling around you know it's easy yeah. to crash into it also rodenticides rat poison 
Uh, they've become recently, in recent years, really potent. All the stuff on Bunnings shelves is in eagles' bodies, it, often at toxic levels, certainly in Tasmania. And so that's really worrying. And we don't know how much of a problem it actually is. So we invited people to come and uh, each May... Everybody get across Tasmania because eagles are very mobile and they're all over Tasmania. And we all do the same thing at the same time, a sort of standardised survey. And each year we get a kind of index of abundance and we're seeing how that changes. Oh, beautiful. Did you grow up in England? I did, funnily enough. Yes, you may have detected that. <laughs> Although I've been here for more than 20 years, but yeah. Who was your inspiration when you were younger? Uh, a big one was a guy called Gerald Durrell. He actually was an author himself. He wrote a, a very famous book called My Family and Other Animals and uh, he tells this lovely story about how he went with his family to live in the Greek island of Corfu and he was just a little boy and he was just like overwhelmed with the beauty of all the wildlife and he he paints a picture of all the um, animals and also his very eccentric family in a really charming way and then he grew up and he actually wanted to start a zoo to basically do captive breeding to build up numbers of, of uh, threatened animals um, but also because he really liked animals and he just really wanted a zoo. And he wrote lots of books about uh, the, the joy of meeting all these extraordinary, extraordinary animals. So, so I was really inspired by that. But then ultimately, I suppose I came to feel that, I mean, I think zoos do have a really important role. But, uh, you know, if you're losing all the habitat, then, yeah, zoos can't solve that. You've got to kind of keep, keep the habitat. You've got to keep things where they are. Yeah. So I got much more into the idea of like maybe not having the lovely animal in a cage <laughs> trying to try to help it in situ okay and that's how you evolved into what you're doing yeah now. I really wanted to be a zoologist from when I was really little and I'm lucky that my idea of what a zoologist was then actually turned out to be still the thing I wanted to do when it was time to go to uni and what did you do at uni I did zoology okay I ended up doing a PhD um, on an amazing animal called the fusa or the fossa uh, which is in Madagascar okay and it's a bit cat-like it's kind of half arboreal half running around the trees and half on the ground wasn't very well known when I was lucky enough to get some funding to go and study it it was an amazing adventure it was lovely i'm very into kind of carnivorous animals they're very fascinating to me very engaging oh wow and your projects at the moment so there's the eagle one that i mentioned uh and then we have another one about a very different species but also very kind of needy so i focused on species that were taking up heaps of my time when i was in government yeah so i would say i had to i had to give advice on around 190 different species the eagles took up a quarter of my time. And another set of species that took up quite a lot of my time were these things called burrowing crayfish. And they're these little freshwater crayfish, but they're often quite far away from creeks. They'll just burrow a deep hole in the ground. Some of them might just uh, hit the water table. Yeah. It could be like more than a metre or more. Some of them will be right up a hill and they'll like create this kind of rain gathering like area. They're kind of really amazing. There's just like one in each of these holes and you'll see this kind of little chimney of mud above them. And certainly in Tasmania, there's more than 30 different species of freshwater crayfish. Yeah, they got the largest in the world. That's right. Yeah, they're in the creeks. Um, but some of these others are, are just all over the place. And you get different species in different areas. And some of them are in this just tiny little areas. So one of the ones that we are particularly focused on is just around Devonport. It's like nowhere else in the world in this er except in this area. So is it just in the one catchment? It's a little bit more than one catchment, but it's not, not much more. more. Yeah, that's right. It kind of lives in kind of wet areas, but people are needing more and more places to have their ha houses and they're tending to drain cattle pastures. Oh, no. And yeah, these things are really, really threatened now. So it's a really contentious thing, you know, living on private land is... It's not what you want to hear. You've got a threatened species in your land. You can't do anything. 
Um, but we've just been trying to encourage people to help map them and to in- understand the issues and just sit with that gently and <laughs> have a little bit of a thing. There's no one else in the world. Uh, I've never heard of a crayfish that lives up a mountain and builds a dam and... <laughs> And tunnels down. That's well, it's a little, little, not quite a dam, but a tiny little, little, yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah. The, the cistern crayfish, because it creates a sort of cistern. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's, a, that's amazing. They're pretty cool, yeah. And then the, the third project that we've got um, is all about uh, animals that are quite difficult to find, but they often make a sound. So we put um, recorders in lending libraries um, and we encourage people to borrow a recorder and then put it out somewhere in Tasmania for eight days. And then they load up what they've recorded online. And because AI these days, uh, it's early days, but we already have the capacity to suggest which bat species they've recorded. And we're also on the lookout for some audible sounds. So those are ultrasonic, but we also have an audible microphone on the recorder. Um, and we're looking out for these amazing water birds called bitterns, which just seem to have really gone down in number in Tasmania. Um, and they make this amazing booming noise. So that's very interesting and engaging. And they depend on wetlands. So that's kind of a, a good thing to involve everyone. In. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the crayfish. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Sure. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. I find that absolutely fascinating. Has anyone worked out how these things breed? Oh, yeah, yeah. In springtime, uh, things really change. So over winter, they're very inactive and they just bunker down and don't move very much um, and often that chimney of mud that was above their their hole has just sort of disappeared and people think it was certainly with some species like the central north barring crayfish that we work in it looks like there's nothing there at all but in springtime you can see a little more activity and you can see that the chimney is all like really fresh mud and I think at that point um, and when there's a decent amount of rain everyone starts moving around okay so the bloke puts on the Barry Manilow and the candle lights. And To be honest, I don't know that we've got the full details of exactly what music they play. They aren't that well known, but I think that's probably, that's, that's what we're inferring. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the female comes to his lair. Something and, like that, yeah. yeah and then okay. the female, she has eggs, just, just like a, any other, like a, a lobster or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, the eggs are inside the tail. Yep. Um, and then, you know, you end up like they, they'll actually hatch and they're still on the tail for a bit. And so she'll have them like with her in the burrow for a fair bit. And then over time, it appears that they disperse. But yeah, I mean, sort of with coming and going water uh, every now and then when, yeah. when it sort of suits. They can, they can cope moving around as long as it's a bit wet, you know. And how are the giant crayfish in Tasmania going at the moment? They were being really badly eaten. And, and yeah, and they're really big old animals when they're big uh, when when they're at a certain size so they were really vulnerable to poaching i think at the moment they're on the up but it, it, i mean it's something that could sort of like turn around quite quickly and obviously there's lots of issues you know making sure that um for example i think the young ones live really high upstream and uh, yeah they're, they're vulnerable to quite a few threats if people sort of change land use and stuff you know and you get a lot of sediment in the water that can still yep. be an issue so there's a lot of things you still have to bear in mind but i think in general, they've got a real champion, a chap called Todd Walsh, who's, who's really, really engaging and got people really thinking about them. So I think that's really helped. Beautiful. And is he like a citizen scientist or is he a 
proper scientist. <laughs> he's definitely a proper scientist, but he's the kind of person that rallies absolutely everybody around him. Okay. He's a man of the people. <laughs> Beautiful. Because I heard they take about 13 years to reach maturity. so they... And they'll carry on growing on and on from there. Yeah. yeah. It's good that it, somebody's doing something about it. And in your recordings that you talked about earlier, has anyone heard the Tasmanian tiger? <laughs> well, look. I mean, I can't say no because we haven't listened to every single minute of every single recording, but we need we need the recogniser. We need to train it on something before we're going to pick it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we might just have missed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how AI is actually coming into science, isn't it? It's incredible. It's incredible. It, it allows us to do so much more because... I mean, we're putting these recorders out for eight nights. You know, you put a, a fair few of those out. And honestly, I mean, you could wander around listening to that noise all day, but A, you'd go a little bit nuts, and B, you'd probably miss stuff because you just, unlike so, yeah. machines, I just couldn't maintain that level of concentration. That, that's yeah, right. and, and um, I mean, it's just getting better and better and better. In, in, in some parts of the world, they're also getting really, really good at basically doing what you might call Shazam for birds, where you could just play daytime birds and like pick out a bunch of like what it, what are all the things calling there's an amazing app called merlin that's really good at that um in certain parts of the world australia seems to be more difficult but my goodness people are working on it but uh, at night time when you've just got a small number of different birds calling m- much fewer they're not all overlapping uh, and that that's getting uh that's getting really good these days already oh that's good yeah. and the birds that you're looking for in the wetland that's makes that what sort of noise noise it's just like if you had a really really big Winchester bottle and you just blew over it yeah and it does like it's slow like does about three so it does go whoa and if you're really close you can hear just as it starts it goes (laughs) and then you go yeah (laughs) you're very good at that (laughs) it's like yeah there's a few birds that you can get a bit obsessed about and like when you hear that and it's dark and there's, you know, the water and the reeds and stuff. And you hear that from, it can really travel. So, you know, it's really far away. And it's just a thrill. And they're so rare as well. Yeah, I've never never heard of them. Oh, they're amazing. So they look, um, they're kind of sort of cream with brown stripes. And they're often like hiding in the reeds. If they're a bit nervous, they'll, sorry, I'm standing away from the microphone, waving my mouth around. But they're sticking their, um, their bill, uh, their pointy bill up upwards and looking like part of the reeds oh wow like, yeah yeah that, that's sort of like a stocky stripy heron but not very much like that <laughs> is there any sort of breeding programs for them or are, are they in captivity no i don't think they're in captivity and again i think you know it's this sort of thing it's like we just need to look after the habitat really yeah it, it is all about habitat isn't it well i mean it's about a few things like as i say with the eagles it's habitat and how, oh, i forgot to mention one of the big things of the eagles is they're really really easy to disturb when they're breeding like you can be a kilometer away oh really if you walk around and you're looking at them breeding they can freak out and desert the nest oh wow <laughs> So it's like, yeah, so captive breeding, like, they just need somewhere where they can just... Be a bird. Yeah, yeah, it's the same with all these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you could breed them up, but then it's just like, well, where are you going to put them, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, people talk about bringing back the thylacine or whatever, but it's like, you know, a lot of these things disappear because there's a threat there. Often it's lack of habitat. It might be because people are shooting them. If you can't get rid of that threat, then it's like, what what, are you, what have you achieved? How hopeful are you about the future? <laughs> 
I'm a little bit nervous, but I think, I mean, one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about with citizen science is I think it's a way of getting more people involved. Working in government, what government um, people say all the time is like, well, we can't change that rule or law or policy because we don't have the support of the community. And so I think things like citizen science and just sharing the information in a way that people really get it and don't and understand that you're not just making it up I think that's what we need I think if people don't really in their gut understand what we're talking about when we're losing biodiversity I I think we will continue to lose it I can't see a way around it and and to be honest I try not to think very hard about the future I just manically try and do stuff that I hope will help (laughs) yes that's fair enough so what I'm getting is that we're pushing from the citizen up to government and dictating to government what we want. Isn't that the way government's supposed to work? It is supposed to work <laughs> like that. But I just feel like, especially, you know, like this, like in the last few generations, we've just gone, oh, well, we can't do anything about it because, you know, they, they make. But we're the ants and we've got the numbers. Yes. And if you don't do what we say, you won't be in office very much. But honestly, I would say, having sat in government, they're saying exactly the same thing. They're going, oh, well, look, I would tell this developer not to do this awful thing to this large area. Um, But, you know, everyone's going to be really angry because jobs or because they don't understand why and they want a house. And You know, I mean, all those things are really complicated. But I think that if people understand the environmental issues and the implications in their hearts just as strongly as as those more immediate and also really important things, I think if people really understand that stuff as well and don't just know it as an abstract thing, but know it like that that bit in my backyard, that reserve right there, that's under threat. I mean, you see it all the time. That that does really engage people I think that has to be something like that where people really get it because they got the data (laughs) that's right I know it works for me like that as a zoologist like you know if I've got the data then I'm gonna be like you know on the march (laughs) the key word I reckon we said was biodiversity once we lose that biodiversity there's no getting it back it's really really difficult I mean yeah I mean extinction we people talk about cloning things and so forth but as, as we keep saying, if you've lost the habitat and you've got the threats and you actually, you can do some really clever things with genetics, but it's going to be sitting in a test tube. Extinction really is forever. Waiting for the habitat to get. And you've lost all that as well and you can't create it over. So yeah, extinction is forever. And, and I, think, I think thinking that through in a, uh, in, in a detailed way when you've got a bit of time, I think it's, it could help. <laughs> But it's a worry. Yeah, it's a worry. And what do you hope to get out of the next few days here at the conference? Well, citizen science is this just amazing technique. I mean, at the most sort of research-obsessed level, if you can involve enough people, then you're going to get more data and you can learn more. And there's all this stuff about, well, how do I involve more people? How do I engage them? How do I keep them engaged? And then, yeah, how do I treat them right? Of course, most decent citizen science, it's like, it's not us and them. It's we're all working together at a common cause and we all really understand that. But as I keep saying, I'm a zoologist and, I mean, we're talking marketing and uh, we're also, well, there's, a, I mean, a heck of a lot of very complex data management and, and stuff about people's, um, you know, ethics and uh, safety and all sorts of extra things that um, you don't 
think about quite so hard when it's just like you and maybe a small research team. Even though many of us are doing complete, a completely huge range of different research, that whole business about how does it work when you're working with a large number of people, often all over the place, how do you, how do you um, engage them, treat them right? Uh, how do you make it something that's really enjoyable? Because most you know, people are doing it as volunteers. It's going to be yeah, fun. Yeah, that's right. Or they're not yes. going to come back. Yeah, exactly. It's really fascinating. I love that multidisciplinary angle, but it's uh, there's a lot to learn. Beautiful. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. Thank you for having me. Claire Hawkins, you legend, you silent achiever, and, and people like yourself are out there in the world, and you are the silent achievers, and that's why it's so important that we get your story out. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.